if you've got a green Bible, uh, one of the church Bibles, we're on page uh, 1108, 1108, uh, which is Ephesians chapter 1, if you're on a phone or a tablet or however you access God's Word these days. We're in the, 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 if you're sort of coming back or you're from a little time away or you're new or visiting, we're in, the, in a little series on the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at this since Pentecost, uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I guess there's a sort of mini-series within the series of how, trying to understand how the Holy Spirit enables us to live now fully the kingdom of God. We, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how do we live that is in heaven now, given that obviously as we look around, we're not living in heaven right now. Watch your news feeds, just uh, inspect the insides of your own heart and those around you. The world is clearly, as Paul says, in bondage to decay. So this isn't heaven, we're destined for heaven, but we're promised by the Holy Spirit a deposit of first fruits that we can live a, a, a foretaste, a deposit of heaven now. How do we do that? Uh, and um, I was, I've been talking about frameworks, Trinitarian frameworks, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, keep them, keep Son and Spirit close together. Uh, last week I talked about the realities of salvation, the positional reality and the experience reality. Often we let the experience drive the position. We, we convince ourselves we're not proper Christians or not really Christians or not good enough Christians. It's not a biblical view. Um, so that's, that talk is on the website from last week if you want to uh, reference that to kind of uh, get up to speed with all we're doing here. Today I want to think about, again, our identity in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, what does that mean in our day-to-day living? How can we secure ourselves in God's love so that we have, with reference to recent toolkit, we have the best story to tell and to be and to live? So here we are, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. I'll go from chapter 1 and verse 1 through to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. fears of a preacher is that um, with a passage like that, he or she will just get in the way of it. Kind of almost solid food. We tuck into some of those phrases. So Father, as we sit under your word, we ask by your spirit that you would enable these words written to them there then to apply to us here now. We sit here as your children. And we long to know the freedom and the security and the significance, the worth that living as your children bestows upon us and releases in us so that we can, by being blessed, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, we, we might be a blessing to others. So teach us now, Lord, where you, where you need to realign our thinking, where you need to shift the, the, the balance, the sort of momentum of our hearts, where you need to refashion our wills to live in accordance with how you see us. Then do it now, Lord. We want to be a transformed and transforming people. For your glory. Amen. Um, it was an argument. I, I'd like to say, because I'm a vicar and it was with another vicar that I was having a discussion, that it was a kind of heated conversation, but it wasn't. It, it started out like that, but it became an argument. It was a few years ago now with a guy who ministers in London, um, uh, another part of London, who, whose ministry I uh, really respect, really like. I think what this guy does in his church a little way away, what I know of it anyway, fantastic. But we were at a sort of clergy conference. It was over lunch. We got chatting and uh, we were talking about we kind of talking about how we see, I don't know how it came up, but we were kind of talking about how we see ourselves and how we see our congregation. And um, the, the inference was, you know, it's good to remind ourselves and to remind our congregation that, and, and this guy, he said, that we're sinners. It's good, it's good to remember that, actually, it's good to remember that we're all sinners. Now, to be fair to him, I'd caveat that with saved by grace. We're sinners saved by grace. And how wonderful is the Lord Jesus that he saves us sinners. But it's worth us remembering. Actually, I've just put that emphasis on. He didn't, to be fair. <laughs> I got heated. <laughs> it's overflowing. Uh, but the, essentially, we're sinners. And I, I took issue. And uh, no, I'm a fairly laid-back guy. I sort of, yeah, you know, I can roll with the punches. But on this one, something got at me. And I, I, I could not let this go. I vehemently disagree. And this guy's a good Bible teacher, and I think he's got the Bible wrong on this point. And I, I kind of went for it. <laughs> Did you notice in verse 1 of chapter 1, when Paul addresses these Christians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Uh, uh, older translations of the Bible has the word saint. 
Not meaning sort of people you know, who are relics or lived several hundred years ago. Saints in the Bible are those people who are forgiven by God in Jesus Christ and who live for him. They, they, are, they are transferred, if I use that metaphor from last week, they are transferred from sinners to saints. And Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. He's not stupid. He's not ignorant of what life was like in these guys who had become saints. Just turn a page over to chapter 4 and verse, uh, let's look at verse 25. He's writing quite a lot of it. It's coming thick and fast with instructions and commands. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why would he write that if there was no falsehood at all? If, if everyone was speaking the truth, there's clearly lying going on amongst these saints. In your anger, do not sin, verse 26. Uh, verse 28, those who've been stealing must steal no longer. So there's obviously been theft and petty larceny, that kind of stuff going on in Ephesus. Otherwise, why would he mention it? He, he's not naive. These guys, again, I'll make reference to last week, so forgive me if you weren't here last week. You'll need to sort of catch. They are, these guys are are perfect in Christ. They're saints. They're perfect in Christ. It's just that Christ's maturing, completing work is not yet finished. So there's still a little bit of theft or a little bit of falsehood or a little bit of sin left, right, and center. And Paul addresses that. But their identity is saints. If I'm drowning in a pool and someone rescues me, I, I, would, I would say, it's true, I'm not going to deny I was drowning, but I would talk about being rescued or being saved. That's, that's, that's my status now. I don't, if, you, if I was to introduce you to my child, wait, child, I mean, six foot four, son, 20 years old. But I don't, I don't say, well, have you met Luke? He's a former fetus. <laughs> I'm not denying that he was, but guess what? His time came, he was born, and that changed his identity. He's now my son. He was my son day one, he's my son 20 years old. He's my son. To the saints, Paul says. I, this guy, you see, I, I think what had happened, if I'm honest, is that his, he'd allowed his experienced reality, and I'm not denying our day-to-day -day experience, his experienced reality began to dictate a positional reality. So, Because he knew sin in his own life, he knew sin in my life, sin in our lives. We fall short of the glory of God this side of eternity when our completion uh, and the, the redemption of our bodies, as Paul calls it, is complete. Until then, we fall short. Yeah, we become aware of our day-to-day -day reality. But that doesn't change who we are. In fact, it's interesting, the metaphor that Paul uses here in chapter 4 alludes to, to clothing. Put off falsehood. Put on truthfulness. I, I've been... Um, pardon the sort of graphic analogy here, but it's been a hot day. I've been in this shirt since about 7 o'clock this morning. By the end of the day, I'm going to need to take this shirt off. It, it's beginning to get quite ripe. I'm, it's not, it's the shirt. I need to take the clothing. The clothing is smelly. The clothing is solid. The clothing needs to, so I put on a clean shirt. It doesn't change who I am. And in the same way, our behaviors, they come from who we are. And because we are saints, we need to practice. Because we are perfect in Christ, we need to work out that perfection with his help. But in the meantime, we don't go back to referring to ourselves in what we once were. We'll undermine the cross and the resurrection. We say, well, it wasn't really. If I, still, if I was a sinner and I'm still a sinner, then what was that about? 
to the saints in Ephesus. Our positional reality, as I was referring to last week, is, is summed up here in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Think of uh, Paul writing to the Galatians, chapter 4, or to the Romans in chapter 8. And the Holy Spirit is the one, we're thinking about this series of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes into our hearts and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. The very same people who, back in Old Testament times, could not even take the word, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, they could not even take the name of the Lord on their lips for fear of being struck down, a sinful people by a holy God. But Christ has come to redeem us to reconcile us to God. And it's the Holy Spirit who lives in us, washing us, sanctifying us, renewing us, and, and, and bringing forth the life of the Spirit in us, whereby, rather than shrinking from the very thought of God, we can dare to call him Father. I, I, I recognize that statistically, in a, in a room this size, there are going to be a number of us who've got a less than perfect, some of us maybe horrible, maybe even abusive experience of a father figure here on, a, on the horizontal plane. But I'm just inviting us by the power of the Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit, the courage of the Spirit to break through to the vertical plane, as it were, and to dare to believe that God who in love, God is Love, the Bible says. He didn't, like, he didn't have to try to be love or nine to five, Monday to Friday he's love and then he knocks off on the love stuff. No, he just, he is love. Slice God open, love pours out. In his love, that perfect love, that pure love, that other focused love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Let me just explain a little bit the context of this metaphor adoption to sonship that Paul is using here. And the background is first century um, Middle East uh, and um, uh, the times when the Jesus lived and the, these uh, New Testament churches grew. There was no, like we have here, fairly advanced welfare states, social services. I know we may feel they creak a little bit around the edges, but wow, the provision that is uh, in this country compared to many countries in the world today but this country certainly compared to first century Palestine. The provision for those who are less fortunate than others in society is, is kind of assumed and taken for granted. But back in the day, nothing. So here's the question. What happens to a little three-year-old boy or a seven-year-old girl who loses, as was frequently the case, loses mum and dad? Maybe the plague or uh, an illness, whatever it is, tragedy of some way, shape or form, often... Um, actually very often girls in the Roman Empire just abandoned at birth they wanted a son because a son inherits that's why adoption to sonship it's not being sexist it's just an allusion to how it worked back then so what happens to a children little children orphaned no social service no welfare state no nothing and the answer is they're just carted off to the marketplace and on a regular basis people would come and buy these people from the marketplace. It's where the idea of uh, 
redemption comes from. You, you pay a, a ransom, literally a price, and you can buy someone out of their orphanage, out of their uh, sort of desolation. And so that's what happens. A, a generous, well-meaning benefactor would come and say, okay, I'll buy those three. And he'd pay the price, and he'd buy you out of anonymity and welcome you into the household. And under the, under the sort of household of the patriarch, very often, again, if he was kind and benign, if there was a fair degree of wealth, in many cases there were, you would become a, a doulos, um, sometimes translated slave or, or servant. Let's not go to the extremes in the caricature of uh, you know, people in dungeons with shackles around their wrists. And, no, a doulos was like a, a kind of domestic, if you like. It, it probably, if you think about a, like a, yeah, sort of a, a cleaner or, or sort of home help who lived under your roof. Or even today, maybe someone like a lodger. That, that's what a doulos, you could picture someone like that. So they're not a member of the family, but they belong under the roof. They share meals, they have a bed, they have many of the privileges that a son or daughter would have. They, they belong under the roof. They're not part of the family by blood, but they're treated as kind of extended family members in, in a culture that knew about extended, not the nuclear family that we, shrunken family we have in the West today. So everyone's included. In fact, one of the, the, the uniforms of a son was to wear sandals or shoes in some form, and doulos often wouldn't. That was one of the ways in which you could distinguish between a, a son and a servant, a doulos. Because in all other respects, they looked healthy, they were educated, they lived around the house, they ate maybe at the table sometimes. Uh, so in all other respects, it was hard to tell them apart. Part of the household, part of the family. But here's the thing. And this question was at the back of the mind of every single son or daughter. And this question was at the back of the mind of every single servant or doulos every single day. What happens when the head of the household dies? Death comes to us all. It's an inevitability. What happens when the head of the household dies? And the answer is simply this in first century Ephesus and elsewhere. The son inherits everything and the slave inherits nothing. It doesn't matter if the son was a lazy, evil, nasty, no-gooder. It doesn't matter the character of the son. He could have been awful, apathetic, rude. He inherits everything. It doesn't matter if the slave who'd been there for years and years, maybe all of his or her life, doesn't matter if he'd been so faithful, so loyal, so servant-hearted. doesn't matter. The death of the head of the household. The son inherits everything. The slave gets nothing. Reality. And that fact impacted every single son and every single slave every single day. Can you see how the theology works with that analogy? The future impacting the present. And Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What of the a number of blessings he talks about here, the first I want to, the one I want to talk about this evening is the blessing of being adopted, of being adopted into God's family. It's way beyond what was first century experience. Look, I'll come on to that in just a moment. 
neuroscience has helped to back up in the 20th, 21st century what Paul was talking about here. The research that we can do on the, on the brain now and uh, all the CAT scans and so on, we can, we can determine that uh, we know that our, our deepest, deepest human need, and this is borne out by just the studies on the brain, our deepest need is to ensure that we're safe. That's our number one. The, the subconscious is really deep. You don't maybe consciously ask it, but subconsciously every moment of every day, am I safe? Your amygdala in your brain releases adrenaline, which you need in a fight-or-flight scenario. In other words, something comes to threaten you, and you, we immediately, it breaks down into two responses very quickly. The brain immediately, it's on, it's on red alert the whole time, immediately, do I fight this in order to survive, to overcome the threat, or is this threat too big, I need to get out of here? Fight or flight. It's the amygdala. Apparently, um, the... Uh, the um, uh, threat warning system in our brain. It's probably got a scientific name, but I'm going to call it the threat warning system to keep it. Uh, that is the, it's the shortest and most immediate of all our systems. It needs to kick in immediately. Am I safe? If you're crossing the New Kings Road here and the number 22 bus is bearing down on you, you kind of chatting a friend, you weren't aware, and there's a bus bearing down on you, you may be tired, hungry, thirsty, but you're not you're not going to ask yourself, oh, where will I sleep tonight? I want to forget a Mackie D's. Is there somewhere I can get a drink? You're going to say, how do I get out of the way of that bus? Your first instance, even if you have other needs like hunger or thirst, your first instance is to make yourself safe. And Paul writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has made us eternally He, has, he chose us, verse 4, in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. Hey, think about that for a moment. He didn't think about you before you were, you were created in your mother's womb. He thought about you and he thought about me, Paul says, before he made all of this stuff. Way back then. As he's making the stars and he's making the planets and he's making the seas and the land. As he's creating all of this, he has you and me in mind. He chose in him before the creation of the world. And in his love, Paul says, he predestined us for adoption to sonship to make us safe. Paul is taking first century reality, what happened in society then, and pushing it way further. See, what happened in society to an orphan with no hope, no one to fend for them, no home, no life or livelihood, probably just destined to, to wither and die, and what's the best hope? What's the best case scenario? What's the good story in, in kind of secular first century Roman Empire? It is that some kind man probably would buy you from the marketplace and welcome you into his home as a slave, as a servant, as a domestic, a lodger. I mean, a good life. Some were treated harshly, I'm sure. But some were treated well. We know that. So you... You're rescued from the marketplace and you belong in a home. But you're still a servant. And when that guy dies, you inherit nothing. You're not that safe. All the while he's alive, yeah. But you see what Paul says God has done in Christ. He's not just 
rescued us from the marketplace. He's not just brought us into his home. God does not tolerate us. I was praying about this and thinking it through today. I wonder whether there are people, maybe this morning, maybe this evening, where your, your best view as God is that he kind of puts up with you. Kind of, he says, you know, come on in. All right, take your shoes off. Um, well, your room's over there. Uh, and we eat at this time and you need to tidy up and you know, I'll tolerate you. All right? Any trouble, you're out. That kind of, you know, we kind of, if it's not too much trouble, God, which just bleeds into, I'm not sure I'm a very good Christian, because you're living like a slave. You're living with the identity of a servant. Oh, gosh, hope things go well tomorrow. No. Paul says, not only are you rescued from the marketplace and brought into the home, you belong here because you have become a son. The metaphor he's using here goes beyond reality. It was impossible for a, a little boy, a little girl, to, to become a son or a daughter. There, was, there wasn't adoption in, this, in the same way that we understand it today. So you were, part, you were just part of an extended household. But praise be to our God and Father that he chose us and predestined us to become his sons and daughters. And not only that, but verse 13, included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's not language you use to servants or slaves. They don't have an inheritance. But as sons and daughters, we do. We have the Spirit. That's what he's doing in our hearts and minds. He's guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You and me belonging to God as his sons and daughters. Just quickly, these uh, headings. Living in the now. I've got the slide here. The first one. Through adoption, the Holy Spirit helps us to know we are secure. The Holy Spirit helps us to know that we are secure. Here's the thing, and again, please forgive the sort of self-reference, but as a parent, I, I, just, I just speak from deep, deep experience that whatever my children do, I've got three um, kind of grown-up children, whatever they do, and let's just imagine they do something really awful. Let's, let's, let's just really play it out. Let's imagine they commit a crime. They're in prison. They're no less my children in prison than they are sitting under my roof now. There's nothing they can do to make them any less my child. There's nothing they can do to make them any, <clears throat> any more my child. But ironically, and you talk to any parents, you know, when children begin to misbehave, weirdly, that draws us to them. It, it may be elements of discipline and containment, but at the same time, kind of what's behind, what's the matter? What's troubling you? Why are you behaving like this? We, we become drawn to them as they, as it were, misbehave. There's, a, there's, a, there's just a connection. I long. Any parents, deep down, I know we, there are messed up parents and messed up lives. I, I know the world in which we live is in bondage to decay. But, but there isn't a single parent on the first few hours of holding that little bundle of flesh and blood that doesn't want the very best for them. And knowing that we are God's children... And that we stand to inherit every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that the Holy Spirit begins to detonate that now. We can begin to experience that now as we're filled by the Spirit. We can begin to know what it is to rest in the security of a God and Father who loves us. 
He wants the best for us. That builds our security. It's through adoption that I know I'm not just an ex-orphan. I'm a fully-fledged heir. I'm not just living in the Father's house. I belong there. We need to allow that truth, that reality, the positional reality, I am a son, I belong, to, to become our experienced reality. Let it sit on our shoulders, let it lift our chins, let it rest in our hearts. I belong in my Father's house. You, you, you know what it is when you were going growing up, you went perhaps around to a mate's house, and you kind of slightly on best behavior, weren't you? You know, oh, hello, Mrs. Robinson. Do you mind? Oh, do I take my shoes off? You know, all sort of faux politeness. You know, you'd never do that at home, did you? So I'll slam the door and you'll saunter in, you know, chuck your coat down. Oh, sorry, Mrs. Robinson, is there any way to hang my coat? You know, I don't want it to mess up your house. It's all very polite somewhere else. Well, but at home, you kind of just chill, relax. You kind of lord of the manor. That, that, I mean, not in an abusive way, but that's, that's the kind of sassy attitude that God wants of us. Yeah, we're his kids. Come on. It's apologetic, I'm not sure. No. Open the fridge, help yourself. <laughs> the Holy Spirit through adoption helps us to know that we're secure. Question, is God your father or your master? Number two, through adoption, the Holy Spirit helps me to realize that I'm significant. If I'm, if I'm his child, then I'm also an heir. I stand to inherit. How, how significant is a son and heir? All the riches of heaven. Praise be to the God and Father who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul simply says, possess your possessions. Live in your inheritance. The Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing, enables us, releases us to do that now. So live in your inheritance. The first fruits, taste and see how good God is. We don't need to wait. We can begin to live this out now. Unlearn the slave mentality. Embrace sonship. And I, I know all along, and maybe this clerical colleague I was discussing with back in the day. Maybe this is his question, but look, come on, Tim. Let, let, let's be real, all this lofty, heady stuff. In the day-to-day, -day, I sin. In the day-to-day, -day, I, I not only let God down, I let myself down. I know it. How can I, how can I sort of claim this sort of security and significance, this child of God stuff, when I know what I'm like? And I guess here is where I, I want to say that the doctrine, the teaching of adoption doesn't stand alone. It, I mean, it is an extraordinary doctrine. We could have a whole sermon series on the teaching of a, adoption. Again, not just being rescued from the market, but being brought into a home to belong. But there's also the doctrine of regeneration, of being born again. So just as I was referring to Luke, he's not an ex-fetus, he's a son. <laughs> he was born 
He has a brand new identity. So regeneration teaches me I am a brand new person, reborn by the Spirit. Sanctification, another magisterial doctrine of the New Testament. This is the, the doctrine of the, the teaching of the Holy Spirit who, who sanctifies me, who makes me holy, who cleans me up. It's the, it's the doctrine of taking off the smelly shirt and giving me a shower and putting on a clean one. And that, the same Spirit is at work in that way. He... he the conviction of the Spirit is just, ooh. That's what the conviction of the Spirit is. It's just, I can smell a bit of unholiness in my life. Sanctification is getting in the shower. He just, I don't mean to be too graphic, but let's play with this analogy of, of washing, being washed by the Spirit. You will have an opportunity this week to be washed by the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to wash you. When you're in the shower, you know, and you're kind of washing, there are parts of your body that you don't kind of spend a lot of time with. I don't spend loads of time scrubbing my earlobes or, or sort of, you know, the middle of my forearm because, you know, it just... But there are certain other parts of my body where I know that for the sake of hygiene, we need to pay attention. We won't go into it, but just... So, you know, it's not like the whole of our lives are massive introspection. You know, that, you know that some parts of the day or some parts of the year or there are certain people groups where, yeah, you're a saint and you know it. But there are other times of the day and other times of the year, maybe, and other people groups or contexts or situations where it can begin to become a bit rife in terms of holiness, if we're not careful. The Spirit will he say, look, be with us, friends, that time of year, that time of day, cool. But that moment, that time, that temptation, pay attention. I'll give you an opportunity to cleanse. There's always a choice in those moments. There's always a choice. And as we choose to live the people that we are, as we choose to possess our possessions, as we choose Gareth Bale-like to play for Real Madrid, to be who we've become, the Holy Spirit comes, surges in. Yes, good choice. And we feel the cleansing. We feel the power. We feel the freedom. Sin doesn't hold me. Temptation reduces its power. I, I know victory in that moment, at that instance, with that person. I'm being washed. I'm being cleansed. It's the Holy Spirit at work in me. This week, every single one of us, there will be an opportunity that will confront us where we're tested, we're tempted, and we could collude into servant mentality, or we can stand up in our sonship. And the Spirit will help us. The Spirit will empower us. The Spirit will inspire us. No, this is how a son or a daughter behaves, secure in who he is, with the significance that comes from being adopted, born again, sanctified, washed, empowered, filled with the Spirit, who, who exercises gifts of the Spirit to bless others. Lydia, next week, is going to be speaking on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We get to, to take part in this life. We take, get to, to, to bring heaven down on earth in all sorts of different ways. How incredible is that? We begin to you know, live out the Father's business. He says, hey, son, you're coming of age. Look at you. On you go. Start to, to carry on the family line. You start to speak and to bless and to pray, to exercise gifts. And as you do, as we live in the Spirit, the Spirit flows through us and cleanses us and enables us and releases us. It's thrilling. The Holy Spirit enables me to realize my significance. Finally, the Holy Spirit, through adoption, assures me of my self-worth. 
This, this is how we live the best story there is. When I know how secure I am as a child of God, when I know and live out my significance, and when I'm assured of my self-worth. This is in, because um, I, I realize this may be in our culture, this smacks of sort of the kind of, um, you know, the uh, sort of empowerment craze and the kind of, oh, be the best you can. You know, you're the, you're the I, I can't remember what that whole, there's all sort of the, you know, um, self-appreciation books and all that kind of stuff. You know, be who you are. You're, sort of, you're the best you, you can be and all that kind of stuff. It, yes. But, but outside of Christ, it's frankly, it's fairly empty. It, it's, it's a passing fad. But rooted in Christ, secured in Christ, significant in Christ, that, that releases in us an unbelievable sense of self. It's not an arrogance. Not, not a pride, just this is the life of God flowing in me. Wow. And, and once we root ourselves in that, it will make an extraordinary impact on our, our understanding of God as Father, on our relationships one with another here as fellow brothers and sisters. And when we take that status and stature out into the world, as we sit at our desk in front of the spreadsheet or on the phone or in the board meeting or wherever it is, the staff room, as we iron a shirt, as we prepare a meal, transforming difference. I tell this story, I've, t- I've told it before, so forgive me if you've heard it, although it's, it's, it's so good, it bears repeating, in my opinion. Uh, it comes from Focus, which is why I really recommend Focus, because this was an extraordinary talk by a, a man called Father Raniero Cantalamessa. He's a Catholic, um, he's not a cardinal, is he? He's, no, he's, but he's, he's kind of high up in the papal household he basically is the pope's chaplain and he's been chaplain to the pope for a number of years so he he teaches and he feeds the pope and uh, here he was speaking at focus in this great big marquee six thousand people and um i don't know do do you might just do you know who i mean by father raniero one or two people no okay i'll have you so you you know i mean bear me out on this he's he's this he's just got a such a sort of he's got such a presence He's got such a humble, he's the mo- I think he's the human being currently living on earth who's most like Jesus, in my opinion. His eyes sort of shine and twinkle. Uh, he's got white hair, a white beard. He's just in this really modest sort of uh, Franciscan uh, habit, just brown, kind of cassock thing. And um, he's got quite a strong Italian accent. So you have to, you have to work quite hard. You have to listen to him. Uh, and he, he just gives you little morsels to feed on. And he, just, he offers, he just offers, and you're sitting there drinking this stuff in. And towards the end of this talk, six of them, we're all, we're all hanging, you could hear a pin drop, we're hanging on his every word. It's feeding us. And uh, he says, he pauses, and then he, and he's talking about, kind of around this theme, and talking from Ephesians. And um, he breaks off, and a little thought occurs to him, and he says, shall I tell you what I like to do after I have received Holy Communion. And we all go, yeah, yeah. Because deep down, like, if I'm honest, my, my kind of fleshy, not yet fully mature heart is thinking, this guy's so perfect, there's got to be some flaw somewhere, there's some chink somewhere. I'm thinking, yeah, after Communion, what do you do? I bet you get on your phone and go on Angry Birds. You're playing there, he's confessing, he's going to fess up something. 
So yeah, we're all going, you know, yeah, we're all going. He said, I'll tell you, little twinkle in his eye, I'll tell you. And he describes how he, he goes and he takes the wafer of, uh, of representing the, the body, the bread, the body of Christ, and he, he takes the wafer and he remembers how Christ sacrificed himself for me. And then he takes the wine, he remembers the wine poured out, the wine of forgiveness. And uh, he receives this. He receives Jesus' forgiveness afresh. And he says, and then I'd like to go back to my chair. And we're all thinking, what's, what's he going to say? What's he gonna say? I'd like to go back to my chair. And I sit in my chair. And I tilt my head to heaven. And I smile. And I say to the Father, now you may enjoy me. <laughs> and, and our reaction was... A bit like that reaction, except many folks. There were 6,000 of us there. And we all kind of roared with laughter. Now you may enjoy me, Father Raniero. Who do you think you are? You, you can say to God, you may, you, God, may enjoy me. <laughs> and Father Raniero, he just, he's so full of Jesus. He just stood there while we laughed in our embarrassment. He just stood there, and he just smiled back at us. He just smiled. And we were kind of... <laughs> and there was this sort of awkward moment when we sort of, we kind of died down, and we looked at him just so, so secure, so significant, so full of his self-worth before his father, that we realized, all oh, right, he actually means that. <laughs> and there was that sort of awkward and he just carried on loving us, smiling at us as, as the Holy Spirit in us kind of brought us up to speed with what he was saying and who we are and the truth. Why does Father Raniero make that claim? Why does he invite us, or I do through him, to us today to make that claim that we can say to the Father, now you can enjoy me? Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure. His pleasure. And it's repeated, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. God is pleased that we're secure in him. God delights that we're significant in him. Not our own self-significance, not our own try and muster up our own security in Christ he delights to see Christ growing in us giving us worth so that we can enjoy God enjoying us it's according to his pleasure he delights in us he delights in you he made you and chose you before the creation of the world to be who you are in Christ he invites you to stand secure. He invites you to realize your full significance. He delights in that sense of worth that enables you to lean back and to smile at heaven and to enjoy God enjoying you. Let's hold the silence.